the impact of the Holy Spirit would be seen upon us through your word. That, Father, as we come to your word today, that it would shape and mold and fashion us into Christ's image. Father, I pray that we would feel the Holy Spirit as we come to your word, as it shows us who Christ is, and that he would transform us more into the image of your beloved Son. Father, you are the great King of the universe. Father, you are the Lord of your people. You are our master, Father. We belong to you. Father, make us willing to lay down everything for you. Work in our midst by your spirit today. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're continuing on looking at the theme of 2 Peter, and that is that there is power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. And again, as we discussed uh, when we began looking at this, at this book, that the, the theme that Peter points us to is how we can have the power to be a pilgrim, as he has discussed it for us in uh, 1 Peter, calling us to that pilgrimage, How do we do that? Well, we find it the more and more we know Jesus Christ. And so that this theme is what he begins with. And so we began looking at that call of what it means to know Christ. And so if you look with me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so we began by looking last week at verse 1, and we saw that Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is speaking as a servant of Christ, is, call, is speaking to those, his, his, his readers, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, or with the apostles. And so what we looked at last week was the first thing we have to understand about knowing Christ is that the knowledge of Christ is dependent upon faith. That we must place our hope completely in Christ alone. That our faith must be completely cast on Him. And so Peter speaks of how this is a shared faith. It is something that as Peter is a servant, so those of us who believe in Christ are also servants. And we discuss the term there actually should be better translated slave. That we are slaves of Christ. And this implies not only that we seek to serve Him as our Master but that he owns us as he has paid for us with the blood of his beloved son. And then he speaks of how this is a justifying faith, that we stand before God in the same way that the apostles and the prophets did, in the same way that any believer stands before God, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we discussed how faith is that which justifies us. It makes us so that when we stand before God, He no longer sees our sins. Instead, He sees Christ's righteousness. And this is the great hope that all believers have had, both in the first century with Peter, all the way back to the beginning of of creation and at the fall where God promised that there would be a curse reversal that would come. And that same faith that we have today will continue to be the only way that we can know salvation. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And so our knowledge of Christ is dependent on faith. Now we're going to begin looking at verses 2 and 3 
this morning. And the second thing we see about this knowledge of Christ is as we know Christ, secondly, we see that it produces both grace and peace. If we look at verse 2, Peter writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And what is the conduit from which we get that grace and peace? In the what? Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What we see is that, first of all, Peter is calling for us to have a multiplied blessing. A multiplied blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. There is a wonderful hope that our standing in Christ by faith does not just provide a future standing, but rather it provides a current standing that provides multiplied blessings to us. That today we stand before God as righteous as Christ. That today we are able to commune and know the blessings that come only through Him. See, we have to understand that our faith is not just something that allows us to have a ticket to heaven or a free pass out of hell. Rather, it is something that provides grace and peace for us today. That we can live every day accessing those wonderful blessings from God. Now, I think we we understand these terms well. We've talked about them before here on many times. The idea of grace and peace. Grace is what we call undeserved favor. It is the undeserved favor that God has given to us. We do not deserve to be His people. We deserve to persist as His enemies and to feel His eternal wrath. But in grace, He saves us. In grace that we have that works within us, giving us faith, it now allows us to enter an entire life of experiencing God's grace. You understand what that means? Is that every day, those who are in Christ, you have the hope of God's favor continually. God looks upon you and graces you at all times. It is from the fullness of Christ that we experience this grace. Look at what John says. It is from His fullness, that being the Word made flesh, that we have all received grace upon grace. Or I like to translate it this way, waves of grace. You ever stand on a, on a seashore and you saw the waves coming in and one will crash in and then another one will crash in and another one will crash in. And it's incessant. It continues. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. And so, if, if, particularly if Peter's going to call us to walk and to find power to walk as pilgrims, that power comes only from the continual, unreserved grace of God to his people. And then that grace then produces the second thing that Peter points to here, peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, Peace is an interesting thing, considering what we talked about with 1 Peter. The life that Peter describes for the pilgrim in 1 Peter, I think at first glance, we would not conclude that that's a peaceful life. Right? We have to, we have to suffer for the sake of Christ. We have to recognize that we're going to be persecuted, that, that people are going to turn from us because of our faith in Christ talks about how we are even going to need to submit to authorities that abuse us and hurt us. We need to do that for the sake of Christ. And so when we read that and realize that this is the call that we have in Christ Jesus, how in the world can we have peace? And yet, Peter here is pointing us to the reality that peace comes through knowing Jesus more. That the more we know Christ, the more we know peace. It is through God's grace that we are able to experience peace, even in the midst of the most pressing circumstances. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an older work. Um, It is a work of history. It speaks of 
of those who have died for the sake of Christ throughout history. And admittedly, some historians have looked at that and thought there might be some embellishment that goes on there. But what is amazing, if you read over and over and over again in the lives of those who were facing death and even in the midst of dying, they would confess that they had peace. That even as they were tied to a stake and paper and wood was lit underneath them, they would know the peace of God. We live in a world that is chronically empty of peace. That seems to be one of the biggest issues of our world today. It's been the biggest issue for a long time, but particularly today. And I'm not just talking about the concept of world peace, although the only way to truly find world peace is through the world coming to know Christ Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. But I'm also speaking in our own individual lives. There are so many things that rob us of peace. And what ends up happening is we seek to know our problems more than we know Christ. We seek to to focus on them and to look at the things that we're facing. And and all that will do is multiply more unpeace to us, more difficulty, more concern. But when we look at Christ, we see peace multiplied to us. We have peace given to us that is able to carry us through any circumstance. And so Peter points us to to these two things, grace and peace. Now these are going to be important to note, particularly as we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because he's going to say something that I don't think maybe we were expecting. He's going to tell us that there are traitors in the church. That there are people who look like sheep but are actually wolves. And that that's going to that their teaching is going to be persuasive. That they're going to pull people away and that's going to be a great concern for us. And yet, through it all, we have to come back and look at the grace and peace of God being the thing that calms our hearts and minds through those things. Peter says that this grace and peace, may it be multiplied to us. God does not simply add grace and peace. He multiplies it to us. It grows exponentially. I don't know if you've seen this riddle or not, but if you had the option, if someone were to come to you, let's say that that Elon Musk walked through those doors today, and he's like, I'm going to give everybody here an option. You can either have a million dollars right now. All right, how many of you would say, oh, yeah, that sounds good, right? You can have a million dollars right now, or I'll give you a penny today and two pennies tomorrow and four pennies the next day, and I'll multiply it for 30 days. Which would you choose? Well, I hear the pennies, but I think most of them, I'll take, you know, a bird in the hands wetter than two in the bush, right? Like we think about that. I'll take the million dollars. But if, and again, knowing that he, hopefully he would follow through on the commitment he made, if you took the penny today and had that multiplied every day, you know that at the end of 30 days, you'd have over $5 million. Multiplication brings about abundant blessings. And this is what Peter is pointing us to recognize. That grace and peace is not just added to us, but it's multiplied. There's more than enough in the reservoirs that our Savior has. He multiplies both grace and peace. What this means then is that in the knowledge of Christ... We have sufficient provision for every day. You truly have all that you need in Jesus. And so that multiplied blessing does point us to multiplied knowledge. 
Where do we go to draw upon this repository of grace and peace? It is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We access these, this grace and peace through knowing Jesus more. The more you know Jesus, the more you will know his grace. The more you know Jesus, the more you will know his peace. Which is why we should be seeking and should never be satisfied with where we are in our knowledge of God. We should constantly be going forward and growing more in our knowledge of the Lord. For the sake of his glory, yes, but also because through him we have more and more grace and peace given to us. This is a gloriously hopeful thing. Peter points us to this wonderful reality. The more we know Christ, the more we benefit from him. This is good news for pilgrims. That as we walk through this world which, in which we don't belong, as we face difficulties, knowing Jesus provides everything we need to live for him. And so this forms for us then the nice, nice transition into verse 3. And that is that the knowledge of Christ provides power. The knowledge of Christ provides power. Look with me in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us... What's that next word? What's the next word? All, All things that pertain to life and godliness through... The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. First thing we see is that knowledge, knowing Christ, provides divine power. Now again, we're looking at how we have power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Christ. What is that, not, that power like? What type of power do we have? And we have divine power granted to us. This power that we have is necessary for us to do everything that he said in verse in, in the first letter. So if we look at the things again to remind you, hope, holiness, sanctification, submission, suffering, transformation, community in the church. How do we do all those things? God's divine power. That is how we are able to walk the path of a pilgrim. This brings great hope. But it also calls us to a way, to the way of life that's described in the New Testament. How does the New Testament describe the life of the believer? Well, it's used in things like a race or a marathon. It's used in ways like walking a way. It's described as the life of a soldier. It's described in a life that we have spiritual combat. That we are at war with principalities and powers. That this is the life of the pilgrim. It is not one where we sit back on our couches and, and watch whatever. Rather, we are actively involved in a difficult life. How do we do it? Well, God gives us divine power. I mean, think, think about how hopeful this is when Peter and Jesus himself promises his people that you will face persecution, that you will be opposed for his name's sake. That we will be strangers in this world and that those who are the closest to us, our families, our fathers, our mothers, our brothers, our sisters, our friends will turn against us for Christ's sake. These are promises that Christ makes to his people. And praise God, he does not call us to do those things in and of ourselves. Who is sufficient for that calling? No one. But our sufficiency is found in his divine power. We cannot walk the path of a pilgrim on our own power. And if you try to do it in your own strength, you know what you're going to find out very quickly? You can't. You're going to fumble and fall. 
throughout your life as a believer if you depend on your power. And so the very thing we desperately need as pilgrims, Peter points us to how we receive it. Now again, he describes this as divine power. What's the implications of that, this divine power? There are two things I'd like us to consider about this power. It is, first of all, superlative, and then it is, secondly, exclusive. It's superlative. That means that there is nothing that compares to, comes close to, or competes with the divine power of God. Nothing compares with His power. Scripture is littered with this reality. It's driven home in again and again. We see it in God's creative power. God spoke and things came into existence. Out of what? Nothing. That's how powerful God is. He can take nothing and make something of it. It's seen in the fury of His wrath in the flood. He destroyed everyone except for those who were on the ark. There was nothing that could stop the onslaught of His wrath in the flood. It's seen in the unstoppable acts of his redemption of his people from Egypt. Plague after plague came demonstrating that the false foreign Egyptian gods were impotent and that Yahweh had all power. It's seen in the victory he gives to Israel as they enter and inhabit the promised land. It's seen in the prophecies that are said and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's seen in the fact that Jesus walks upon this earth for 30 years. And for only three of those years, he turns the world upside down with miracles that had never been seen before. Taking water and turning it to wine. Giving lame beggars the ability to walk. Creating eyes in blind men. And raising from the dead one who was dead. And all of this culminates in Christ himself suffering on the cross for our sins and raising from the dead. This is the power of God and there is none like it. He has triumphed over every other power that exists in all creation through his resurrection. Colossians chapter 2, 15. After Christ had made an offering for sin, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Paul is saying that there is no power that can compare or compete with the power seen That God has in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul so desperately seeks to know him and the power of his what? Resurrection. It is the resurrection of Christ that is the clearest demonstration of the superlative power of God. There is no other power on this planet that can give life to the dead. And so Peter comes to us and says, look, you have granted for you everything you need that pertains to life and godliness through that divine power. This is the power that Peter points us to. God provides through the knowledge of Christ his divine superlative power for our walk as pilgrims. There's no power greater. And then, as it is superlative, it is also exclusive. This is the divine power. How many gods are there? One. There is only one source of this power. And God is the only God who exists, making him the only one who possesses this level of power. This uniqueness means that we cannot look for the power to walk the Christian life from any other source. 
No Christian self-help book will provide what is needed. No inward focus to actualize the potential in yourself will give you this power. This power exists apart from you. It is outside of you. But yet, by God's grace that is multiplied to us in Christ Jesus, it is given to you in Christ. So where do we drop the ball here? Well, we often seek to walk through the Christian life under whose power? Not God's power, but our own power. We look to ourselves as the ones, and we think that sheer force of will will keep us from giving in to temptation. We depend on our own intellectual efforts to comprehend what God's Word says. We look to ourselves over and over again, and here's the thing. The, the folly of that is obvious. God's power is so great, our power is non-existent. And yet we are fools so often because we depend on ourselves. So when Peter calls us to recognize that it is divine power that is granted to us, it is a call to abandon looking to ourselves for this strength. Because we cannot produce it. So knowing Christ, first of all, provides divine power. Secondly, knowing Christ then provides sufficient power. It is only in Christ's divine power. It's not only that it is divine power, but it is sufficient power. It is enough. We don't need to supplement it or add anything to it. God provides all that we need. Notice again what he says in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things. All things. There's nothing lacking in the power of God given to us through the knowledge of Christ to do what we need to do. There's nothing lacking. My fear is that the church today has wanted to feel like we need to prop up God's power by adding experiences. By building up emotion by, by seeking to, to make people feel a certain way. And in doing so, we neglect the fact that God's power is enough. Is He not enough? We have all that we need in the power that God gives through the knowledge of Christ. Now notice he speaks specifically of two arenas or areas that this power is applied to, life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Now there's a little bit of debate among the commentators about what this life is. What is he referring to? Some have taken it to mean that as life in sort of the general course of life on earth, that God provides everything we need to live on the earth through the knowledge of Christ. And now there are certain aspects of this that are correct. But I think as Peter discusses godliness in connection with this life, I think he is pointing more, more clearly to spiritual life. Now some have looked at this and said it's referring to immortal life or eternal life that we have in God. And I think that's implied. But in reality, I think what he's referring to here is the life that we have by faith in Christ, it is the new life that we have. That we do not add anything to that life, that spiritual life, which guides us through this life and also ensures the hope of eternity. We don't add that to ourselves. It is solely by the grace of God and wrought about by His divine power. Ultimately, we don't save ourselves. Nor do we maintain ourselves and the life that we have by God. Any more than we maintain the life we have physically. Now, yes, we can do things to keep ourselves healthy. We can exercise. We can eat right. I mean, you're supposed to do those things. I don't know how well I do those things, but I was exercising yesterday. We went laser tag with the, with the teens. I will say that 
that one of the teens mercilessly shot me on the ground as I was laying there over and over again. Not bitter at all. The life that we have in Christ is ours by God's grace alone. And the power to live that life is given by his divine power. Listen, it's not maintained by our good works. You are not living a spiritual life today because you're in church this morning. Or even you're in church on the, on the Sunday where we lost an hour of sleep. That's not what maintains your spiritual life. Your, your spiritual life is not maintained even by your scripture reading or by your prayer. Now those things add to your health, but your life is given by the power of God. And He has given enough of His power so that everything needed for that life is yours in Christ. And so... How do we then grow in spiritual life? How do we proceed in that spiritual life? And the answer is the same way that we tap into the grace and peace. It is through knowing Him. Knowing Him more, you get more life. And you know, if you truly are in Christ, you know what this looks and feels like. You know when when you're reading the Scriptures and the Spirit points out something about the Scripture that applies to your life that you need to change and and you begin to grow a little bit more. You know what that's like. And it's glorious. And it's given by the divine power of God. So everything is given to us for life and everything is given to us for godliness. Now, I love how these two things are balanced here by Peter. Because on the one hand, we could sort of say, well, if my spiritual life is completely dependent on the power of God, then I I just sort of sit back and I'm not responsible for anything. But that's not the truth that the Scriptures bear out. Yes, it is God's power that gives us this life, but then that life is given to us so that we would pursue a life of godliness. Lest we think that our spiritual life is only a matter of faith and knowledge of Christ apart from any works, Peter here shows us that we are to be godly people. Godliness is not what provides that life, but rather that life produces godliness. And we can't mix those around. The minute we mix those around and we switch those around and we say that our godliness is the means to life, we've gutted the gospel because we've made it about who? Ourselves. But as we have life, we will have lives of godliness. God's spiritual life given to us by his power will produce godliness. And so this is how we evaluate this. If there is no godliness, then guess what there likely is not? Life. Just in the same way that if there is no leaves on a tree, what has happened to that tree? What does that tree not have? Life. And so his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So my challenge for you today is just to consider, do you ever feel like your Christian life is floundering? Sin seems to be winning the day. You don't feel as close to the Lord. You don't connect seemingly with other believers. So what what do we do in these instances? Well, we seek to jumpstart our spiritual life. And so we seek experiences. Or we read books. We go to seminars. We devour YouTube videos. We listen to podcasts. You may even devote yourself to more Bible reading and prayer. But what's the one thing that's missing from that? If you do these things without pursuing ultimately Christ himself, you will not gain anything. That power will not be evident to you. The end goal of everything we do in our Christian life is not 
to make us acceptable before God. Rather, the end goal of everything we do in our Christian life is to know Jesus more. Peter is reiterating here what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with who? Him, with Christ, graciously give us what? All things. All things. And so what we have to recognize is that the only hope we have for the Christian life to access this power is granted to us through the knowledge of him. He says there in verse 3 that everything for our spiritual life and our lives of godliness come through the knowledge of him. That word knowledge that he uses there, that word knowledge has the idea not just of sort of a general knowledge. You know, I, I know generally about certain things. But rather he's talking about a specific, intimate knowledge. A comprehensive knowledge. A knowledge that is showing the closest of relationships. That is the knowledge that gives us all things. Which brings us then, fourthly, as we looked at knowing Christ, what it does. The final thing we see is that the knowledge of Christ points us to a hopeful future. Notice, again, what he says in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The first thing we see is there is a hopeful future for all who are what? called. Peter is wrapping up this call to dependence on God's power by providing a basis for hope in that power. Now, it is certainly enough to know that the power provided is God's divine and sufficient power, but Peter goes further by pointing to the future. And that future, that hope that we have in Christ is guaranteed by God's own nature and character. How do we see this? Well, we see this, first of all, in the fact that he says that we are called. He addresses his readers and includes himself as those who are called. Now, when we think of calling, I think sometimes our minds go to the idea of an invitation, something that we can, you know, we have to RSVP to. And we get to choose or, or make a choice as to whether or not we're going to go or not. But that is not the idea of calling as the New Testament speaks of it. As New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner comments, God's call is effective. It awakens and creates faith. That is the message throughout all of Scripture of what God's calling is. The faith that provides that equal standing with the apostles is given as God's gift through God's effectual call. And when we say effectual call, it means that it will not fail. We see this throughout the New Testament in a number of different passages. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. I don't have the, the verses up there. But Romans 4, 16 through 17, Paul speaks of the guarantee given to those who have faith, a faith similar to that of Abraham's. Now, here's the thing with Abraham. Abraham was just minding his own business in Ur of the Chaldees, right? And what happens? God calls him. And that changes everything about Abraham from that time forward. And Paul is likening that call, the call of Abraham that produces transformative change in him to the call that gives us faith. What ends up happening with Abraham? What was the promise that God made to Abraham? I'm going to make you of you a what? Great nation. Did that happen? Yes. Abraham was made into a great nation. That 
promise could not be turned back. And so when God called Abraham, there was a certainty that Abraham would follow that call, heed that call. We see it in Romans 8.30. This is known as the golden chain of redemption. You may know it by heart. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. And those whom he predestinated, them he what? Called. Those whom he called, them he justified. Those whom he justified, them he what? Glorified. Now, what's really interesting is that all of those words are in past tense. Why, is, why would Paul speak of glorification as being a past tense thing? Because just as certain as our predestination, our calling, our justification, God who does those things, He will accomplish the glorification of His saints. And so there is a certainty to this call. There is a certainty that we will be God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, Paul speaks of the sustaining power of God who will in the end sustain us as guiltless until the last day. Why can we be confident of this? Because God is faithful and from His faithfulness He has called us to fellowship with Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, our sanctification... And our presentation when Christ returns is certain. God's people who are His, those whom He has chosen, those whom He has um, justified, those whom He has called, those whom He has justified, those whom He has sanctified, those whom He will glorify. When we stand before God, there is no question. Those in Christ will be accepted. It's not a, a matter of if. It's a matter of when that will happen. And we speak with scriptures as John does, Come, Lord Jesus. Why do we have that confidence? Because God who has called us is faithful. He will do it. So when Peter speaks of the calling we have, It grants us this knowledge of God. It is speaking of the effectual call of God's grace. Listen, why does this give us a a hopeful future? Because if you have been called by God's grace, you will stand before God justified in Christ one day. It is that certain. And so the power of God that brings about this salvation shows us This hopeful future because we are called. But secondly, we see there is a hopeful future because of Christ's character. Notice we are called to something or by something. It actually would be better translated by here. By his own what? Glory and excellence. While Peter grounds our hope for a hopeful future In our calling, he also grounds it in God's own character. We are called through the knowledge of him by his own glory and excellence. What does God, when he calls people to himself, give them when we see Jesus? What does the knowledge of Christ allow us to see? Glory and excellence. Glory refers to that which only God himself can possess as God. It refers to Christ's splendor and majesty as the divine being. Listen, there is no glory but God's that exists. And in Isaiah, he says he will not share his glory with anyone. And yet Christ possesses the exact imprint and nature of God so that He holds that glory. 
Then we also see it refers to his excellence. His glory and excellence. Excellence, this term that's used here in the underlying language, it refers in the Greek world to possessing moral virtue. This is referring to the sinless life that Christ lived on the earth. As Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15, Christ was tempted in every point like as we are, but what made him different? Yet without what? Sin. So God calls us by graciously revealing those realities to us. That there is no one as glorious as Christ and there is no one as sinless as Christ. It is by those things that we have this power. It is by the knowledge of Christ who is glorious and who is excellent that we have this power. The believer knows that Jesus is God and that as God he perfectly possesses all that is in God. The believer knows that Jesus lived a perfect life in every part, both in action and attitude. And knowledge of these things, not just knowledge of these facts, but experiential knowledge brought about through the work of the Spirit spurs us to that personal faith and dependence upon these two truths. In Christ, here's the reality, in Christ we no longer fall short of the glory of God. Isn't that a wondrous thing? Because apart from Christ, everyone falls short of the glory of God. But Christ possesses that glory and that sinlessness. And so by faith in Him, we are established before the Father. And so this calling by the revelation of Christ's glory and excellence brings a hopeful future for us. As Christ will never, you know, realize Christ will never cease to possess that divine glory. And Christ will never fail to perfectly keep God's law. This is what lays the foundation for eternal life. Jesus says in John 17, 3, he tells us that this is eternal life that they know you, the only Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know why believers are going to possess eternal life? It's not because we can live forever. But rather, we live forever so that we can pursue the knowledge of Christ even more. How long does it take to know an infinite being? An infinite amount of time. And so when we look at this power that's given to us in Christ, we find this wondrous hope, this wonderful, hopeful future because of who Christ is. Now all of this is tied, as Peter does, to knowing him, to knowing Christ. Knowing Jesus is dependent on our faith. It's dependent on us knowing Christ fully and completely. This is how we have power to walk as pilgrims. It's through knowing Him. So my question for you this morning is, do you possess this knowledge by faith? Have you turned to know Christ By faith alone. If not, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. And he's commanding us to turn to Christ. Will you do that today? And if you know Christ, you have that saving knowledge. Are you growing in it? Maybe you look at your life and you see a mess. Maybe you don't have peace. Maybe it doesn't feel like that grace is being multiplied to you. Maybe you're, you're filled with fear and anxiety and concern. Maybe you look at different aspects of your life, different relationships you have, and, and, and you see a mess. 
And the temptation is to let that mess be the thing you know more and more. And Jesus is saying, know me more. Grow in knowledge of me. And you will find the power you need to face all of that. As you look forward to the day where you who are in me by faith will stand before my father and be accepted. This is how we have power. To walk as pilgrims. As we continue in 2 Peter. May the knowledge of Christ grow among us. Each week. As we grow in conformity to his image. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your word. Lord I pray that we would seek to know you more. That we would not be satisfied. Father, that we would voraciously pursue knowing you more. That through your spirit, you would burn within us an urgency to know you more. That we may find in you everything we need for life and godliness. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation given through Christ. Work in our hearts as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood.